Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 48 Verse 21 Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Burkett notes, Here our blessed Savior begins to expound the spiritual sense and meaning of the law, and to vindicate it from the corrupt glosses of the Pharisees, where, observe, Christ doth not deliver a new law, but expounds the old, doth not enjoin new duties, but enforces the old ones. The law of God was always perfect, requiring the sons of men to love God with all their hearts and their neighbors as themselves. In this exposition of the law, Christ begins with the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill, where he shows that besides the actual taking away of life, a person may violate that command, one, by rash anger, two, by disgraceful and reviling words. Hence learn that every evil motion of our heart consented to against our neighbor, all our unjust anger towards him, all terms of contempt put upon him, are forbidden by the law of God, no less than the gross act of murder itself. Learn, too, that wrath and anger without just cause has its degrees, and according to the degrees of the sin will the degrees of punishment be proportioned in the next world. Learn, three, that self-murder is here forbidden, and in no case lawful, man having no more power over his own life than over another's. Though life be never so miserable and painful, yet must we wait God's time for our demission and release. Verses 23 through 26. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, first to be reconciled to thy brother, and then to come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Burkett notes, For preventing the sin of rash anger, which in our Savior's account is a degree of murder, he exhorts all his disciples and followers to brotherly agreement, and to seek mutual reconciliation with each other. Agree with thine adversary, that is, thy offended or offending brother. Agree with him, as becomes a man, quickly, as becomes a Christian, implying that it is a necessary duty for every Christian to seek reconciliation sincerely and speedily with such as have offended him, or have been offended by him. Observe, too, the argument or motive with which Christ enforces his exhortation to brotherly reconciliation, drawn from the peril and danger of the neglect. And this is twofold. The first respects our present duties and services when we wait upon God at his altar and attend upon him in holy offices. None of our performances will find acceptance with God if there be found malice and hatred, anger and ill will against our brother. 
learn that no sacrifice we can offer will be acceptable to God as long as we ourselves are implacable to men. A second danger respects us when we appear before God in judgment. Then God will be our adversary, Christ our judge, Satan our accuser, hell our tormentor. If now from the heart we do not everyone forgive our brother his trespasses. Lord, how heinous then is the sin of inveterate anger, hatred, and malice in our hearts against any person. No gift, though never so costly, no devotion, though never so specious, will prevail with God to pass it by while we live. And if we die with hearts full of this rancor and bitterness, we can never expect to be encircled in the arms of him who is all love, all mercy, all goodness, and compassion. No reconciliation with God without a hearty goodwill to all men. Nay, farther, the text here speaks of a prison, which is a dreadful dungeon of hell, into which the implacable and unreconciled person must be cast, and lie forever without mixture of pity. And it is not men scoffing at it that will secure them against the horror of it. Verses 27 and 28. Ye have heard it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Burkett notes, Our Savior next proceeds to explain the seventh commandment, which forbids adultery, by which the Pharisees understood only the gross act of uncleanness and carnal lying with a woman. But, says our Savior, whosoever secretly in his heart desires such a thing, and casts his eyes upon a woman in order to such an act, entertaining only a thought of it with pleasure and delight. He is an adulterer in God's account. Learn that such is the purity and spirituality of the law of God that it condemns speculative wantonness, no less than practical uncleanness, and forbids not only the outward action, but the secret purpose and intention and first outgoings of the soul after unlawful objects. Verses 29 and 30. And if thy right eye offends thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and that not thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Burkett notes. Our Savior had condemned ocular adultery in the foregoing verse, or the adultery of the eye. He that looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart. Whence note that the eye is an inlet to sin, especially the sin of uncleanness. Lust enters the heart at the window of the eye. Now in these verses, Christ prescribes a remedy for the cure of this eye malady. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out which is not to be understood literally as if Christ commanded any man to maim his bodily members, but spiritually, to mortify the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eye, which otherwise would prove a dangerous snare to the soul. Learn, one, that sin may be avoided. It is our duty to avoid whatsoever leads to it, or may be an occasion of it. If we find the view of an ensnaring object will inflame us, we must, though not put out our eye, yet make a covenant with our eye that we will not look upon it. Note, too, that the best course we can take to be kept from the outward act of sin is to mortify our inward affection and love to sin, 
This is to kill it in the root, and if once our inward affections be mortified, our bodily members may be spared and preserved, for they will no longer be weapons of sin, but instruments of righteousness unto holiness. Verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Burkett writes, Our blessed Savior still proceeds in vindicating and clearing the seventh commandment from the corrupt glosses of the Pharisee. Almighty God had tolerated the Jews, in case of uncleanness, to put away their wives by a bill of divorce. Deuteronomy 24.1 Whereupon the Pharisees maintained it lawful to put away the wife upon every slight occasion. This abuse Christ corrects, and shows that divorce, except in the case of adultery, is a certain breach of the seventh commandment. Learn, one, that so indissolvable is the marriage covenant betwixt two people, that nothing but adultery, which violates the bands of marriage, can dissolve or disannul it. Learn, too, when persons are unjustly put away, it's unlawful for them to marry to any other, or for others knowingly to marry them. Verses 33 through 36. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself but shall perform unto the Lord thy oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou cannot make one hair white or black. Burkett notes, The next commandment which our Savior expounds and vindicates is the third, which requires a reverent use of God's name. Now the Pharisees taught that perjury was the only breach of this commandment, and that swearing was nothing, if they did not forswear themselves, and that persons were only obliged to swear by the name of God in public courts of justice, but in their ordinary and common discourse they might swear by any of the creatures. Now in opposition to these wicked principles and practices, Christ says, swear not at all, that is, one, Swear not profanely in your ordinary discourse. 2. Swear not unduly by any of the creatures, for that is to ascribe a deity to them. 3. Swear not lightly upon any trifling or frivolous occasion, for oaths upon small occasions are great sins. So that an oath is not here forbidden by our Savior, but restrained. For though light and needless, common and ordinary swearing be a very great sin, Yet to take an oath upon a solemn occasion, when lawfully called thereunto, is a Christian and necessary duty. Christ, by this prohibition, doth not forbid all swearing as a thing absolutely evil, nor doth he forbid all assetory or promissory oaths in matter of testimonial, when imposed by the magistrate. For Christ himself, when adjured by the high priest, did answer upon oath. But he forbids all voluntary oaths in common conversation and in our ordinary discourse, because an oath is an act of religious worship. Therefore, to trifle with it is a hard provocation. Verse 37. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil.
Burkett notes, Here our Lord prescribes a proper means and remedy for shunning the occasion and danger of rash swearing, and that is by using and accustoming ourselves in conversation to a true simplicity and constant plainness of speech, either affirming or denying, according to the nature of the thing, letting oaths alone till we are called to them upon great occasions, for ending strife between man and man. Learn that the great end of speech being to communicate the sense of our minds to each other, we ought to use such plainness and simplicity in speaking that we may believe one another without oaths or more solemn and religious asseverations. Verses 38 through 41. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Burkett notes, Our Savior here vindicates the sixth commandment, which obliges us to do no wrong to the body of our neighbor. God had given a law to the public magistrate to require an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth when a person was wronged. Hereupon the Pharisees taught, that a private person, wronged by another, might exact satisfaction from him to the same degree in which he had been wronged by him. If he had lost an eye by another, he might revenge it by taking away the eye of another. But Christ says, I say unto you, resist not evil. That is, seek not private vengeance, but leave the avenging of injuries to God and the magistrates, and in trivial matters not to appeal at all and when forced, not for revenge's sake, teaching us that Christians ought rather to suffer a double wrong than to seek private revenge. Christianity obliges us to bear many injuries patiently, rather than to revenge one privately. Religion indeed doth not bid us invite injuries, but it teaches us to bid them welcome. We are not to return evil for evil, but are rather to endure a greater evil than to revenge a less. Verse 42. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Burkett notes, Our Savior here presses the law of charity upon his disciples. This is twofold, a charity in giving to them that beg, and a charity in lending to them that desire to borrow. Christianity obliges all those who have ability to abound in works of charity of all sorts and kinds whatsoever. He that is truly charitable that not only give but lends, yea, sometimes lends looking for nothing again. It is not enough to act charity of one sort, but we must be ready to act it in every kind, and to the highest degree that our circumstances and abilities will admit. Giving is a godlike thing. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He gives before we ask, and we must imitate God in giving, namely, by giving what we give cheerfully, sincerely, discreetly, proportionally, universally, in obedience to God's commands, and with an eye at his glory. And there is sometimes as great charity in lending as there is in giving. Many a poor family, by our lending to them a small matter, may raise themselves into a condition to live comfortably and honestly in the world. Verses 43 and 44. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. 
Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Burkett notes, Another corrupt gloss which the Pharisees had put upon the law of God, our Savior here takes notice of. The law said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 This they interpreted to relate only to their own countrymen, the Jews, concluding that they might hate all the uncircumcised nations as enemies. But, saith our Savior, I require you to love all men, for if enemies must not be shut out of your love, none must. Love your enemies. Here the inward affection is required. Bless them that curse you. There, outward civility and affability is required. Do good to them that hate you. Here, real acts of kindness and charity are commanded to be done by us to our bitterest and most malicious enemies. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. These are the highest expressions of enmity that can be. Calumny and cruelty. Yet are we commanded to pray for those that touch us in these two tenderest points, our reputation and our life. Learn that Christianity obliges us to bear a sincere affection towards our most malicious enemies, to be ready upon all occasions to do good unto them, and to pray for them. Verse 45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Burkett notes, to encourage us to the foregoing duty of loving our enemies, our Savior propounds the example of God himself to our imitation, that ye may be the children of your Father, that is, that you may be known to be the children of your Father which is in heaven by your likeness to him and imitation of him. Note 1, that the best evidence we can have of our divine sonship is our conformity to the divine nature especially in those excellent properties of goodness and forgiveness. Note, too, that God doth good to them that are continually doing evil unto him. Rain and sun, fat and sweet, gold and silver, are such good things as their hearts and houses are filled with, who are altogether empty of grace and goodness. Verse 46 and 47. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publican so? Burkett notes, Yet farther to encourage us to the duty of loving our enemies, Christ assures his disciples that he expects more from them than from others, more than the common humanity and civil courtesy towards friends. For even heathens, by the light of nature, were taught to love those that loved them. But he expected that Christianity should teach them better, and lead them further, even to love their enemies, and to bless them that curse them. Note, love for love is justice. Love for no love is favor and kindness. But love for hatred and enmity is divine goodness, a Christ-like temper, which will render us illustrious on earth and glorious in heaven. But, Lord, how men do confine their love to little sects and parties, and from thence come that bitterness of spirit of one party towards another, and oh, how hard it is to find a Christian of true Catholic love and temper. Verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Riquette notes, that is, 
aim at perfection in all Christian virtues and divine graces, but particularly in this of love, in imitation of your heavenly Father, who is the perfect pattern of all desirable goodness and adorable perfections. To be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect is indeed impossible as to equality, but not as to imitation. The word rendered here perfect by St. Matthew is elsewhere by St. Luke rendered merciful, Luke 6.36, implying that charity is the perfection of a Christian's graces. He that is made perfect in love is perfect in all divine graces in the account of God. Learn one, that there is no standing still in religion. He that will be saved must press on towards perfection. Two, that no less than perfect and complete perfection in grace, and particularly in the grace of love and charity, is and ought to be the aim of every Christian in this life, and shall be his attainment in the next.